From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Well, the Illinois legislative fall session is complete. Lawmakers have left the Capitol. They won't be returning until January. What did they do? What didn't they do? We will talk about that coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And we have two guests this week, Mike Militich, he covers the Statehouse for WAND-TV, and Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. Happy back, Sean. Always glad to be on. Thank you. Mike, I will start with you. Um, I guess it's the old saying, some bills pass, some bills fail, and some don't even get a hearing. And we saw a little bit of that going through the last couple of weeks, last few weeks here with the fall session. Let's focus first on what was accomplished. It was an effort to utilize nuclear power, albeit on a small scale. That was approved after a veto earlier this year. So, Mike, what was done to get this across the finish line? I think that there has been strong bipartisan support for nuclear for quite some time now. And as you noted, there was a plan that passed out both chambers this spring. It was vetoed at the last minute by the governor because he felt the original language in that proposal was a bit too vague because of the definition for the nuclear reactors that they were talking about. The worry from the governor and many clean energy groups was that that bill would allow for construction of major nuclear sites like the ones that we see up in the northern and uh, you know eastern part of the state uh, as you get closer towards the central Illinois region. But the biggest thing that people wanted to make sure was done was the fact that there was smaller nuclear reactors, uh, these small modular reactors, SMRs the lawmakers have talked about for a while. They got to the board with the governor and many other advocates that are from the labor side and the Manufacturers Association to ensure that they could come to an agreement on what could be done. Basically, to come to that agreement, they had to ensure that there were safeguards in place in working with the Illinois Emergency Management Agency and Illinois EPA to ensure that if these reactors are here in the state, there are rules for decommissioning, environmental monitoring, and emergency preparedness for when these things are available. Now, most people know the technology for these small nuclear reactors isn't necessarily ready to go just yet. We're a few years away from that. So nuclear reactors aren't going to be popping up tomorrow. It's still going to be some time. That's why in this bill language, they said that they would lift the 1980s moratorium on nuclear construction January 1st of 2026. So we still have some time. And this bill also calls for a study on how the modular reactors can help the state. Uh, There's still many clean energy people that are upset about this, though. They would much rather have seen a standalone bill that just did that study about the costs, the risks of having these small reactors and what it could do for the state before they lifted the ban. Uh, Some people are concerned about that, but it does seem the governor is ready to sign it when it gets to his desk because his administration was very key in negotiating those changes. Yeah, so he is on board. Is that right, Brendan? He's he's definitely going to sign this, it appears. Yes, the governor put out a statement yesterday indicating that he will sign this bill uh, just uh, 
little over uh, pretty much exactly three months after he vetoed the original bill. Uh, as Mike mentioned, this topic has kind of been uh, divisive um, on, on the Democratic side of the aisle uh, with uh, especially uh, environmental groups, progressives, um, you know, kind of skeptical of nuclear energy, um, uh, concerned about, uh, obviously, uh, the waste storage situation that still needs to be uh, resolved at the national level. Um, and, and obviously, uh, wanting to have more stringent, uh, regulations, uh, now it should be noted that nuclear is pretty significantly regulated at the federal level, but, um, I think that there was a, a definitely a clamor for more state regulation as well as, as Mike mentioned, you know, this, this is, this is a big deal. It might take a few years for some of these small modular reactors, uh, to become a reality, it's widely acknowledged that uh, nuclear has to be part of the solution if Illinois wants to meet its clean energy goals under the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, uh, get to 100% uh, uh, renewable energy by 2050. You know, nuclear is kind of seen as a bridge. Uh, obviously, we saw that with the, uh, I guess, incentives, uh, state incentives for, for some of the plants to stay open a few years ago. Uh, and now with some of these small modular reactors, um, I think that uh, a lot of people are excited about the potential that may bring to to provide power in addition to uh, obviously the uh, the ramping up of of wind energy and solar energy across the state. Now, Charlie, do you see this as as like Brendan was saying this? is a bridge to getting to a more cleaner energy producing environment? I think it is in, in terms of reducing the uh, carbon output from energy production. But the problem, I think that the environmentalists were pointing out, is the same problem that led to the initial uh, passage and approval of this moratorium on nuclear power back in 1987 and that was what do you do with the waste from nuclear power generation this stuff the spent fuel rods are no longer under current technology can no longer be used to produce electricity but they are still highly radioactive and some of this stuff for all practical purposes in terms of our human existence uh is eternal in the time it takes to degrade. And so the 1987 law said, we can't do any more nukes in Illinois until we there is a permanent resting place for these spent nuclear fuel rods. And that has not yet developed. Now, the idea is, I guess, that the, these small modular reactors, when they are finally developed, won't create as much waste but environmentalists say you still have the problem of what do you do with the stuff? So I think that issue is still going to be out there. And as was mentioned, and I think it was Senator Resin who was the sponsor pointed out the, the technology to actually do these things and say, bring one of these small reactors in and put it where there's now a coal fired plant. Uh, it's, it's really not ready. And it, and it might be maybe, you know, another five, 10 years before it's actually practical. 
while we're talking about energy, there was also some discussion that involved the company Ameren, a big power producer uh, here in Illinois and much of the Midwest. And Brendan, what took place with that? Something called right of first refusal. So what are we talking about with that and what ended up happening? Yeah, so there was an effort uh, in the spring session uh, and towards the very end uh, in May, uh, an amendment was slipped onto a larger omnibus energy bill that essentially gave Ameren what they call a right of first refusal uh, to build out uh, new transmission lines in their service area in downstate Illinois. So that basically means that uh, um, MISO, which operates the, uh, the grid in downstate Illinois, uh, is going to be uh, seeking to build out um, billions of dollars of uh, new uh, transmission lines over, you know, the next several years. Uh, it needs to happen uh, in order to create more capacity to, um, you know, as more, uh, I guess, wind and solar energy come on the grid, um, uh, again, to support some of the goals under CJA. Uh, so basically, this uh, the bill would would basically uh, allowed Ameren to build out those trans transmission lines without having to competitively bid. Um, you know, Ameren and, and the advocates for, for argue that they know they know their system. Uh, they they're they're familiar with all the contractors and organized labor. Uh, they can get this done a lot quicker. Um, however, uh, the governor pretty uh, quickly said he would veto it, and he ultimately did. Uh, basically saying that it would lead to ratepayer uh, uh, rate increases for for ratepayers because um, you know it would allow for it would allow for competitive bidding and perhaps better better pricing uh, on some of these projects. Um, so at, in the first week of veto session, uh, the uh, uh, proponents of of the bill basically said acknowledge that they did not have the votes and they they were not going to uh, push. For a veto override uh, of, of the governor's amendatory veto, uh, and they said that they're going to try to come back in the spring uh, with a new bill for a right of first refusal, uh, and that uh, notably it would include the entire state, which would include ComEd as well up in northern Illinois. Um, this is a, a, a pretty interesting topic. Um, you know, it, Illinois is not the only state dealing with this. Um, you know, ever since uh, uh, FERC Rule 1000 came out in 2011, which basically got rid of the federal right of first refusal, um, it's basically been up to the states. Um, most of the states in MISO uh, have adopted state level right of first refusal laws. Illinois is one of the few that has not. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, it's really about who gets to build the grid of the future. And it, should it be existing utilities in the state, or should it be, um, you know, other you know entities, uh, perhaps some that work in the clean energy field who might be a little bit more familiar with working with uh, wind energy and solar energy. Um, but obviously, there are concerns there about you know what you know you know what types of workers are they bringing in? Are they going to pay union wages? Things of that nature. Um, so that's going to be a huge topic. Uh, that that comes back uh, when, when when lawmakers come back to the Capitol in the spring. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises, as well as Mike Militich with WAND-TV. Well, Mike, something I thought maybe they could work something out on that might get done. Certainly it's gotten a lot of attention 
has been a program called Invest in Kids. This is a Rauner-era program, uh, and it will expire at the end of this year. Nothing took place in the legislature to get this uh, possibly extended. So where does this stand at this point? Is it gone for good, or is it likely, again, in the spring, maybe they can come together on something? Do we know? I think at this point, there are many advocates, uh, many Republicans, and a small group of Democrats that wish that this program could continue. The issue is people needed to come together on a compromise for the program. Uh, Specifically, a lot of people don't like the fact that rich families that donate to the scholarship program receive a 75% tax credit for their donations. There was some talk of lowering that tax credit, uh, making sure that in the language for the law, that these scholarships go to people that are low-income black and brown families. A lot of lawmakers are concerned that there are many white families that abuse the program and lie about how much money they have, and they end up gaining you know, scholarships, sending their kids to the schools. I mean, you you could look around Springfield here, and on the west side of Springfield, there are tons of signs in front of mansions that say, save my scholarship. That could obviously be people that are just supportive of the program and want to see lawmakers do it. Uh, they, they could be people that donate to the program and receive that 75% tax credit. I think the biggest thing that we saw this week was the fact that there are very passionate families that have young kids that wanted their lawmakers to hear them. And Brendan and I both know that they definitely heard them. Uh, There were protests nearly every day here at the Capitol during the first and second weeks of veto session. Uh, Kids yelling out, Mr. Speaker, call the bill in terms of talking to Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch. Save my scholarship was another chant. I, I think that people didn't come to understand that there was no way possible that this proposal was going to move during veto due to the fact that a bill was filed by a few Democrats at the last minute. You know, it was filed and was only on first reading because it was a bill that wouldn't be able to move in the short amount of days that we had for veto session. If lawmakers were realistically trying to move something, they would have put it into a shell bill, what we call a gut and replace, take an old bill that isn't going anywhere, put it, put the language into that bill so that they could have moved it on third reading. And I, I, I think that there was a false hope for some of the people that kept coming to the Capitol because they were demanding that they vote on this bill. They didn't understand that there was no way that they were going to vote on a bill because that plan wasn't even assigned to a committee. So it, it, it was very intense here at the Capitol for a controversial plan. Obviously, there there's going to be a media push, which give all the praise to the group who was able to get messaging out on the Save the Scholarship. I think every single uh, major TV station in Chicago, the newspapers, you know, papers down here were covering nonstop this program. And they had local angles. They were talking about kids that are in Chicago that didn't feel like they could succeed in the public school that's right down the block from them, but they were sending their kids, you know, 45 minutes or an hour away to go to a good school like Mount Carmel, Marist on the south side, close by my, my 
schools. You know, it's it's just interesting how this all worked out. I'm curious, Brendan, what were your thoughts on it? The, the passion in the Capitol was clear this week. And I mean, they were, uh, as Mike knows, in, in, in the Capitol all spring as well, uh, trying to get this scholarship program uh, renewed uh, as as. Uh, you know, people can remember this was a program that was approved in uh, 2018, uh, 2017 under former Governor Rauner. He vetoed the original evidence-based funding bill, and this is uh, some view as kind of a face-saving measure, uh, allowing the governor to sign that bill, um, you know, created this program, but obviously there was a sunset date, and lawmakers simply decided not to extend the, the sunset um, you know, and I and I and I encountered some of these kids uh, in the elevator. Uh, they didn't know I was a reporter, so they were asking you, know, "Will you save my scholarship?" And I had to tell them, "No, uh, I, I I can't do that." Uh, you know, I've written about the topic. Um, you know, one thing I think though that gets a little bit lost is that there is nothing stopping rich folks from donating to private school scholarships. It, they just won't get a tax credit. And I think that's a question a lot of uh, folks were asking this week. Is like why why do these folks need need a tax break to be able to donate to to these scholarship programs you know some people were trying to turn the question around of like will you save my scholarship like well maybe you should ask the donors instead of you know asking state lawmakers this is clearly a a, a program that wanted the teachers unions wanted killed the pro progressives don't believe because they believe it died Verts money from public schools and from that otherwise would go to state coffers, and and, and clearly uh, it's going to sunset. Uh, and the question is going to be when they come back in January, do they decide to retroactively extend it? I think most people would say that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, Charlie, you wanted to weigh in on this too, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say as a practical matter, just looking at it without contesting or debating the merits of the issue, as a parliamentary issue, the fact that it did not get passed during the veto session isn't that relevant in the sense that for it to pass during the veto session, it would have required extraordinary votes, three-fifths votes, 71 in the House, uh, 36 in the Senate, and it clearly did not have that kind of support. In fact, I believe the supporters said that the maximum they could come up with was was in the House was maybe 57. And even if they had the three, if, if they passed it with a simple majority, it would not become effective before next July 1. Whereas if they wait and make the push in the spring, they can pass it with simple majorities, 60 in the House, 30 in the Senate. The governor has said if they pass it, he'll sign it, and it could become effective immediately meaning that the program would in be in place for the 24-25 the school year and enabling families to be able to plan ahead rather than having to wait until July 1st. So I'm thinking that the energy that was expended is good to build an atmosphere and a climate in which when they come back in January, I would guess there's a fairly decent chance that this program will pass. I want to get to a couple of other issues, so uh, give us a quick overview, Mike, of something that was that's called Karina's bill that also has not made it through the legislature. Uh, got a, got a lot of attention going into the session. So, what happened with that? What does it do, and what happened with it? Basically, what this plan would do is address the problem when it comes to domestic violence survivors being in a home with someone that still has a firearm. 
you know, they could have an order of protection that rightfully is agreed to by the courts. A lot of times the people that are still in that home don't have their guns taken away. Uh, they could give it to someone that's still in that home, like a brother, a friend, let's say that they're roommates with someone. What ends up happening a lot of times is there's an order of protection granted, and a few days later, someone is violently attacked or even killed. And that's what happened here with this proposal. It was in honor of a woman that was killed very recently uh, by her abuser. Uh, because of the fact that he still had a gun in the home. You know, it, it was an awful situation that many people said this cannot happen anymore. Uh, Representative Maura Hershauer has long fought for gun control. Uh, before she came to the legislature, she was also part of Moms Demand Action, and she was the lead sponsor, along with Selena Villanueva in the Senate. And they wanted to make sure that the courts in every single state know that these guns need to be removed from the household. A big holdup on that is making sure law enforcement know how to properly get those guns out. And once they get the guns removed from the home, and where are they putting them? A lot of the sheriffs across the state were concerned about that. And the Association of Sheriffs said, we need to ensure that there are tools for us to not only get those guns, but keep them in a safe space. Uh, you know, was there going to be a relationship with getting those guns to federal dealers or getting those guns to people that are out of state that was kind of up in the air? It seems that there wasn't an agreement with law enforcement on the best ways to move that. But there is a push to get this done during the spring session. I expect to see several hearings on this, as well as many press conferences, because the people that are looking out for those that are survivors of domestic violence truly want to make sure that anyone that's in a horrific situation like that, that looks out for themselves by asking for an order of protection, is truly protected and not harmed after the fact. And Representative Hershauer pointed this out. They managed to get the bill out of the House in the spring, and it sat in the Senate, wasn't considered in the spring session. And in the meantime, before the fall veto session, Karina Gonzalez and her daughter were shot to death, allegedly by her abusive spouse, who had the gun in the home, even though he was supposed to give the gun up. So it, in my mind, that really is a, a tragic underlining of this whole issue. Brendan, a couple of minutes here left. Uh, legislative staff have been talking about trying to unionize. There was an effort that uh, started to bubble up a little bit more in the house there was movement on it and then crickets and so what happens next with that do we know yeah so for the past year uh legislative staff in the um for the house democrats have been seeking to unionize uh obviously the state passed the workers rights amendment uh it was approved at, at the polls last year um but in order to uh so, so they they had the fundamental right to organize, but in order to facilitate that, a a change in state law is needed. House Speaker Chris Welch uh, introduced legislation in September that would do just that. Uh, would create a whole agency to oversee negotiations for for the House or for, for the legislature um, with their staff, basically allow for this unionization to happen. Uh, it passed the House in the first week of veto session. Uh, it went over to the Senate. 
uh, and as you said, crickets, which from a lot of folks I've talked to have, have, have said that, that that is not a surprise uh, because uh, there has not been a huge, there's not been a huge effort in the Senate among the staff to unionize, not to say that it won't uh, eventually come up, but it's, it's something that you're not seeing the same clamor in, in, in the Senate for that. Um, but there is time because uh, this bill would, you know, not take effect um, or, or some of the provisions wouldn't take effect until uh, 2026. Uh, so there, there would be a, a ramp up time. Uh, so they, they will have some time to, to, to discuss this issue further. But, you know, the speaker likes to, to fashion himself as a champion of labor. Uh, passing this bill allowed for him to do that. You know, I do think that he does believe it. But also, uh, I think that there's kind of an acknowledgement that, you know, as long as this is mostly a House issue, uh, I don't think you're going to see the same, I guess, uh, push to get this over the finish line in the Senate. All right. Well, let's go to our notes from the field. And uh, Mike, we'll start with you. Uh, One of the plans that was a bit overlooked towards the end of session when most people were focused on the Chicago school board maps was the fact that lawmakers in the Senate and House passed a bipartisan plan this week to address the unreasonable delays for the state to approve or renew licenses for your healthcare workers. Doctors, nurses, and even dentists have been concerned about losing their jobs if their licenses lapse due to no fault of their own. So the state is basically responsible for licensing your healthcare providers, and the system that they've had in place is very outdated and not responsive. So this bill will create an expedited process for software to modernize the Illinois process for professional licenses. The bill also requires the agency to extend the expiration date or renewal period for licensees if the department is actually leading to this issue. So it should lead to many doctors and nurses getting their licenses renewed as soon as possible once the governor signs the plan. Okay, Brendan. Earlier this week, I interviewed North Carolina Democratic Party Chair Anderson Clayton, uh, who at 25 years old is the youngest state party chair in the country. Um, I did so because the news peg, I guess, is that she's gonna be the uh, uh, headlining uh, speaker at the McLean County Democrats Obama Legacy Dinner tonight. Um, she's a very fascinating person, uh, has a great perspective on uh, young voters and on rural voters. So she's from rural North Carolina. Uh, so she's going to speak to uh, Democrats in central Illinois tonight. Uh, I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of overlap there and, and, and a unique perspective for, for Democrats who are trying to uh, compete uh, in a swing county in McLean County and as well as in the rural county surrounding where, um, you know, they, they, they've lost some ground in recent years. So it'll be an interesting perspective for them to hear. All right. And Charlie. Well, in the past, we've talked about the problem of the migrants arriving in Chicago and wanting to work and the difficulty of finding places for them. Well, there was a pilot program that kicked off this week in the city that is intended to help these new arrivals who are in shelters actually get the work permits. One of the problems apparently is that you have to go through a lot of red tape to even apply for the permit. So this pilot program is designed to uh, be sort of a a one-stop clinic that would help the eligible non-citizens who are the 
a large number of them are coming from Venezuela and they are here legally, it would help them to get their work authorizations. The idea is to speed it up so that they can begin to fill some of these vacancies in hospitality and other areas that exist in the city where employers really want to hire these folks, but the federal red tape is making it difficult for that to occur. So this is a, apparently this is going to be a step forward that may help solve this problem. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises and Mike Militich with WAND-TV. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.